Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Richard Fogarty on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Race and War in France, Colonial Subjects in the French Army, 1914. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Richard Fogarty on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Race and War in France, Colonial Subjects in the French Army, 1914 to 1918. It's a very interesting book because it brings to light uh, the paradox of a Republican imperial power. The French, of course, uh, were Republicans, not in the American sense, but in the more general European sense. In other words, they believed... Uh, that those who undertook all the duties of citizenship should receive citizenship. Yet, during World War I, they uh, drafted and impressed a terrific number of uh, their colonial subjects, uh, required them to fight and die for the country, and did not extend citizenship to them. Um, Richard does a terrific job of laying all this out and exploring it in some detail. He also does a terrific job of explaining the experiences of the indigenous troops during the Great War and how the uh, French uh, attempted to um, write their Republican values with uh, what was really uh, their native racism. It's a terrific book, and I I hope that you read it, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Richard. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? Good. How is everything in Albany? Uh, just fine. We're just getting started with the winter weather. So. Is that right? Um, yeah, we have. I think we have 70 degrees here in Iowa today. It's it's quite remarkable. 70 degrees on Halloween. I'm very grateful uh, well, for that. It's a little bit less than 70 here. I'll yeah, just say that. I imagine. Well, let me tell our listeners that we have Richard Fogarty on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Race and War in France: Colonial Subjects in the French Army, 1914 to 1918, which is hot off the presses from John Hopkins University Press and. Baltimore, in fact. Um, So if you would, Richard, why don't you begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, that is, where you went to school and uh, where you grew up and where you went to school and how you became interested in history and that sort of thing. Okay, sure. I I grew up, for the most part, in upstate New York, uh, near Rochester, New York, and I attended uh, SUNY Geneseo mm-hmm. as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I was uh, I, I worked for a couple of years, but then went to the University of Georgia, where I received my master's degree. Mm-hmm. And then I moved on to UC Santa Barbara mm-hmm. in California for mm-hmm. my PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've, I've, I've moved around quite a bit, and, and now uh, I've taught uh, at a couple of different places, but have now ended up back in upstate New York at SUNY Albany. So mm-hmm. sort of full mm-hmm. circle. How did you How did you originally become interested in history? Well, I was uh, I, I was always interested as uh, as a child in history, but when I got to college, I thought that I needed also to make some money. So <laughs> I, I thought I, I double majored in economics and history. Uh-huh. And uh, by the time uh, uh, by the time I'd done that for about three years, I realized that uh, I, I was better at history. <laughs> economics, and it was uh, probably a good idea to try to make a living at history instead. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and I had some, some really wonderful teachers, uh, uh, Charles Bailey, who really influenced me to, to think about doing French history. He was a historian uh-huh. of the French Revolution. And um, then I went on to University of Georgia, where I studied with John Morrow, who works on the First World War. Uh, in Germany, in fact, uh-huh. he, he supervised my thesis, uh, my master's thesis on France uh, in the period just before the First World War. Uh, so he was instrumental in sort of bringing me toward the 20th century. And then at uh, Santa Barbara, I studied with Jack Talbot 
and Ken Murray and uh, Mike Osborne, all of whom do mm-hmm. French history in, in the modern period. So yeah. that's that's sort of my my pedigree. Yeah, I've been to um, UC Santa Barbara on a couple of occasions actually, and I always uh, wondered how anybody gets anything done there. Because right, I know. <laughs> I, well, I often joke that uh, I probably would have would speak six languages now if I'd gone somewhere else. Because, uh, it is hard to work. At least I found it hard to work when you can see the ocean. Yeah, no, that, window. Yeah, that's that's really what got me is that you could just run out on the beach at any given yeah. moment. Yeah, I mean, as a, I don't know how anybody holds anybody's attention there. It's truly incredible. I can understand, you know, here in Iowa we have, or I suppose in Albany, you know, we have the winter where we kind of buckle down and, you know, put on all our winter clothes and sit in our study some study but there you don't really have to do that but um it sounds right. like it was it sounds like it was a terrific place to go to graduate school um, oh it really was yeah, yeah that's great so um this was uh the book that evolved out of your dissertation is that correct yes it is uh-huh that's right so um why don't we just begin a discussion of it how did you land on this particular topic why french colonial subjects during the first world war well, I was always interested in questions of race and racism. Uh, and, and when I was in graduate school, I was sort of, uh, like most graduate students, fishing around for a topic and came across uh, just a line in an article that said that France had used 500,000 troops from the colonies to fight in the First World War. And I thought, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. Uh, mm-hmm. I suppose maybe other people don't know that either. So I, I thought I'd look into it some more. And it, 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 it's seemed to bring together to me uh, all the sort of uh, my main interests, race and racism, the history of war and and military institutions, Mm -hmm. and also uh, colonial history. Mm -hmm. And what really attracted me to it was that there was a sort of paradox at the heart of it, that that it seemed as if France, the sort of mythology was that France had used these troops because France was free of racial prejudice and was more committed to Republican ideals. Mm Uh, yet at the same time, uh, you know that didn't jive too well with France's possession of a colonial empire mm-hmm. and things I knew about French racism. So I wanted to explore how France could get sort of both reputations as being both race-less and racist at the same time, and this seemed to be a good way to get into that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I see just your point. I know that we in the United States, or I'll speak for myself, have this notion or stereotype that the French are very tolerant of racial differences, um, more so than Americans. I haven't, in my own personal life, uh, seen that to be really true, (laughs) but uh, we do have this notion of it, and your book does a terrific job of of kind of explaining why that is and the paradoxical nature of the French uh, approach to race. Why don't we begin telling the story by um, asking you to go a little bit uh, out of the ken of the book itself and explain how uh, France got this empire. Well, uh, that's a good question. France lost its uh, its original colonial empire to to Great Britain for the most part in, in the 18th century, and started out uh, sort of again almost from scratch in 1830 when uh, when France invaded Algeria. But it, it's really with the the onset of the so-called new imperialism of the late 19th century. When all of the uh, colonial, or excuse me, all of the European powers really get into, uh, in particular, carving up Africa mm-hmm. and and creating these large empires, that France, the, the French empire building really took off. And mm-hmm. In fact, that coincides with the inauguration of France's Third Republic mm-hmm. in 1870. Sort of another paradox that that France's first uh, and longest-lasting, most stable republican government builds its its largest colonial empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, by 1914, France uh, possessed large territories in West Africa, North Africa, Madagascar, Indochina, uh, and and had the second largest colonial empire in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, legally speaking, was the status of these colonial? I, I was going to call them subjects, uh, but I don't really know that they were subjects. What what was their legal status within the um, within the Third Republic? Well, they were um, they were colonial subjects, but the the the, the problem in, in sort of answering a question like that for the French Empire and, and in fact for other empires as well is that different colonies had different juridical uh, and political statuses mm-hmm. within the empire. So, mm-hmm. 
for instance, Tunisia and Morocco were protectorates, and so the, the colonial subjects there were, were both French colonial subjects and citizens of the nominal uh, head of state, who was the, either the Bey of Tunis or the Sultan uh, in Morocco. So, mm-hmm. um, so there, in, in a sense, there's, there's a, a great variety there. But the, the overall status, if you can generalize it, is that uh, uh, colonial subjects were just that. They were subjects and not citizens. They mm-hmm. did not have the rights of, of French citizens but were subject to French law uh, and French political control. Mm -hmm. How did uh, Republican thinkers square um, the imposition of the status of subjecthood on their um, colonial population with the sort of more general um, Republican notion of inclusive citizenship? Well, you know, that, of course, comes up... uh, as a very acute question during the First World War, when these men enter the army in great numbers and, and fight for France, and, and serving the army is, of course, one of the main duties of citizens, and so uh, and, and that is usually in return for rights. And of course, that's not the case here. So uh, the, the way the, the French squared this, the, this this apparent contradiction was to, to to try to either ignore it or to erase it or in some ways to bring the, the two positions into uh, to, to greater consonance. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't that wasn't easy because as soon as you make uh, corner subject citizens, then of course they can vote and, and control their own destinies and quite mm-hmm. often that means uh, exiting the empire mm-hmm. or at least that's Fear. So, um, the the idea was that well, these these people are are colonial subjects, and the reason is because they're not ready to exercise the full mm-hmm. the, the full rights of citizens. They are, in fact, in, in many ways, children. And of course, behind that is is the power of racism. That, that of course, Africans are black, and North Africans. Uh, they they would have said North Africans are brown, or in some cases they said North Africans were white, but but less civilized than Europeans. It, it is of course very complicated as any racist ideology is. But the 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 way in which they sort of reconciled that contradiction primarily was through pointing to race. Um, then again, that that is of course difficult because uh, because Republican ideology is supposed to be universal, so that that doesn't resolve the tension. But it, it, it sort of puts the question off. They, they can argue that, well, these mm-hmm. subjects are, are not ready now, but with uh, maybe uh, a few centuries of French tutelage, they will be ready, in fact, to become citizens. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing. So that's how they, they say, well, we are, in fact, there is no contradiction here. We are carrying out a Republican mission even mm-hmm. as we build an empire. Mm-hmm. So their expectation was then that these colonial subjects would one day be citizens. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, uh, I, I suppose if you pressed some, uh, some French thinkers and, and, and politicians about this, uh, people who thought about this question, they, they would say yes, but they, they would say that that day is, is very far off indeed. Others, of course, had their doubts uh, that, the, that that would ever come to pass. But, um, but yeah, and, and the, the idea was that well, they'll become citizens, but of course they won't, that doesn't mean the end of the empire because they won't want to leave the empire. There, there, there was a strong belief in the, the attractive power of French culture. Uh-huh. And that, so it, it wasn't necessarily a vision of the end of empire as much as it was a, a vision of turning mm-hmm. these colonial subjects into French people. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, that's a lot easier if you, if you think of it more in terms of theory than reality. In, in other words, if you think, well, this is something that may happen far down the line. Mm-hmm. So, would you say that the uh, you bring this up in the book, and I thought it was a good point. Uh, would you say, I, in other words, I know the answer to this question, but I'd like you to say it um, to our listeners. The, the did, were these imperialists with a uh, clear conscience? Yeah, a- absolutely, and that's uh, that's something that, that that I mentioned a little bit in the beginning, but but I'll come back to at the very end of the book that that they had a clear conscience. Now, of course, having a clear conscience and being innocent are too yeah. or too radical. <laughs> yes, they are. And, yeah. and in this case, uh, this is a good case of it. Um, they had a clear conscience because they believed they'd resolved these these issues by. Uh, in, in coming as close as they thought was appropriate to being true to Republican ideals 
but uh, at the same time, you know, um, arguing that well, these colonial subjects are not ready for full citizenship. And so, yes, they, they many uh, had clear consciences to be sure. Mm-hmm. But as I said, that doesn't mean, of course, that you know. Well, uh, I, I quote uh, Henri Bonchevig, the the uh, French colonial historian, who says, you know, they were they this of course blinded them to the evils they were committing, mm-hmm. which of course uh, means that yes, they were committing evils. So. So yes, a clear conscience, but but certainly mm-hmm. not guiltless. In this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting and important point, and it's an important distinction you make because I think it's often the case that we look back on these people and we think, oh, you know how horrible they were. But I think from their perspective, they were trying to do something that was uh, generally good, and so and this motivated them actually to to build empire in this way. In other words, it wasn't just a pretext for yeah, empire. Yeah. yeah. And I well, I think that you know that that it's uh, one of the things that that uh, I, I talk about a statement that Alice Conklin, uh, one of the, the finest historians of French colonialism there is, working today, she she says that you know it's easy to conta- condemn colonialism and its worst excesses. It's it's considerably harder to figure out exactly how it worked. Yeah. And one of the ways it it worked was uh, this the kind of thing that I'm trying to describe where it would. Where people could have a good conscience, a good republican conscience, even, mm-hmm. in, and 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 administer an empire, mm-hmm. and so and and again, that that I'm often reminded of this when I hear people, either politicians or um, uh, embarrassingly historians accused of plagiarism, who say, "Well, there was no intent to deceive. I didn't intend." Mm-hmm. You know, I, in, in other words, they they had a clear conscience when they did yeah, it. Right. But of course, yeah. you know, intent uh, that doesn't mean they're not guilty. So one yeah. of the things that but I'm really careful, uh, at least I hope people recognize and very careful, this is not a, somehow a sort of defense of uh, French imperialism or any kind of imperialism or an argument for a liberal style of imperialism mm-hmm. that is somehow better than others. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to understand exactly how it works. Mm-hmm. You know? No, I think that point comes through quite clearly in, in the book, especially in the, in, the, in the last chapter, as you say, which I think is really terrific. And, and you point to these quotes, and they're wonderfully placed as well. I, I, really, I, really, I read it last night, and I really appreciated them quite a bit. Let's turn to the war itself. Uh, I'm a kind of fan of military history. Um, one thing I... I, I would like to ask you is did did the um did the French general staff I don't even know if the French had a general staff did the French general staff have a plan to use these indigenous troops uh prior to nineteen fourteen in a continental conflict yeah they there there was uh, a plan and it was so much about the first world war was was unexpected i mean there there was certainly a plan to use them, but not a plan to use them on this scale because the, the, the French high command, like many high commands, didn't think the war would turn out quite the way it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, as big and as long as mm-hmm. it was. So um, the, certainly there were uh, um, about 90,000 troops, uh, indigenous troops, um, in the French. They called them indigenous troops. Uh, the late should know that mm-hmm. whether they were in France or not, they mm-hmm. called them uh, troops indigenes or indigenous troops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so. And that term covers sort of all soldiers who fought in, uh, from the colonies. So anyway, there were uh, uh, several thousand, tens of thousands of these troops, and they came from the very earliest days, August of 1914, to fight in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were part of France's overall force structure, and certainly in the case of North Africa, they were the ones who were closest but North Africa, um, Algeria in particular, was integrated into the French Empire both uh, politically, administratively, and militarily. So mm-hmm. the troops, uh, both white and non-white troops, in other words, native troops, troops native to North Africa, mm-hmm. were part of the French Plan 17, which was the, the, the plan to, um, uh, to to wage war in 1914. Mm-hmm. So yes, they, they, they were expected to participate, uh, but not, not in the numbers, of course, mm-hmm. that they eventually did. Mm-hmm. How, how did the French levy them in the colonies? And were, there, were there standing military forces, and how were those military forces increased? Well, yeah, there there were uh, standing military forces, and there there was uh, some of the things I talk about in the, the very beginning of the book, um, the, the chapter on recruitment called Reservoirs of Men, discusses this, where there were there there had been a, and actually a fairly long history of using troops uh, from the colonies to fight 
within the colonies in the French army. And there were recruiting systems in place. In some cases, and again, there's a great variety in the different colonies. In some places, there was conscription, uh, and, and not universal conscription, but a form of, of, of the draft, in other words. There were also bonuses. Uh, the French administrators exercised pressure on local elites to come up with, quote, volunteers to, to serve, and, and of course they would then volunteer <laughs> people uh, mm-hmm. who they thought uh, should be in the French army, and, and and that was their choice, of course, not the supposed volunteers. So there was a tremendous variety, but they, they have to intensify all of these methods as the war goes on. So conscription becomes extremely important in North Africa whereas in, in Algeria and Tunisia, but in Morocco, for instance, all of the soldiers who fought were volunteers mm-hmm. of one sort or another. So, uh-huh. once again, there, there's a variety of experiences there. Mm-hmm. Um, was there resistance to the draft or conscription in the colonies? Yes, a- absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there, there was... There, there, there was well, there was, and there, there, there was less than you might expect, in fact. Um, there was, in West Africa, a few fairly serious revolts, but as, as historians of, those, of that period have, have pointed out, the revolts in some ways had a lot to do with issues that predated the war. So um, certainly conscription and uh, the, the pressure to produce volunteers intensified the, the, the desire to revolt. And, and you have people resisting conscription and resisting any sort of enrollment in the French Army in North Africa as well. But in, in, to a surprising degree, people cooperated, and I think that speaks to the, um, not necessarily to the enthusiasm of colonial populations, but to the enormous pressure that the colonial authorities were able to bring to bear on these populations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. How did the um, well? Let me put the question a little bit differently. Was there an expectation among the colonial soldiers or those people that recruited them that they would benefit in terms of gaining some status within the empire or perhaps even citizenship? The reason I ask this question is that I've interviewed several people who um, have studied uh, America in the First World War, and you know when they levied uh, African American troops, they, they, they were uh, they, they, the African American troops were. were were kind of given to know that their status would rise in some way that perhaps this was a first step to, to a more general equality. Was there a similar sort of expectation among the um, among the indigenous troops? Yeah, certainly among some of them. Uh, some of them would have, wouldn't have thought very much about those issues because they probably would have had other things to think about. Um, if, you know, if people with less education, less exposure, um, people from rural areas and, and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Certainly educated uh, and, and assimilated colonial subjects and urban dwellers, people with, with greater contact with French administration, had usually uh, higher expectations of that. Um, now, this in some cases was just they drew sort of logical conclusions from French ideology mm-hmm. and, and just, it, it, you know, it makes sort of practical sense that mm-hmm. you serve, but of course there, there must be some sort of pay back for mm-hmm. this thing. Uh, the service, but uh, on the other hand, um, there, there there were incentives and there were implications that this would that this would result in some some concrete gains. Mm-hmm. However, you know, it, it's quite often it's the the case that you have people saying, well, if we do this, then they will surely have to reward us, mm-hmm. and that's not the same as as you know reacting to sort of concrete promises and. And of course, citizenship later in the war becomes an incredibly difficult issue for the, the French authorities to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would, if for reasons of ideological consistency, uh, like to offer citizenship to these troops. However, this carries the kinds of implications that you might imagine are, are dangerous to, to colonial rule and, and authority and, frankly, pose racial questions about inclusion in the nation that, that many authorities don't want to face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. After the troops were uh, levied and when they were uh, put on ships, I suppose, and uh, brought to France, how were they integrated into the French force structure? Were they in separate units or were they... Were they were they blended with existing units? 
Um, they were, it, it, well, the, the French army is at this time separated into the, the Metropolitan Army uh, and the, the Colonial Army. And the, the Colonial Army, this is why it's, it's difficult to refer, refer to these troops as colonial troops. That's why I use the French term indigenous troops, because, uh, because colonial troops actually meant anybody who served in the Colonial Army, so mm-hmm. whites and, and non-whites as mm-hmm. well. And so they they served in um, they served usually in in units that were designated as uh, tirailleur units. In other words, units exclusively from a certain colony. That usually meant that they served with white officers and non-commissioned officers. So there was some mixing in that sense. And they often mixed in with white troops uh, in in larger units. So a couple of companies might form a, a battalion with a couple of other white companies or something, mm-hmm. as, as they put it. But um, so, so there was some integration, uh, depending on which uh, level you, you're talking about. There, is, there are a few exceptions to this. Some, through administrative anomalies, some formal uh, residents of the colonies actually have citizenship rights. Uh-huh. And and even though, for instance, they're black West Africans, they serve in integrated, they serve in, in regular metropolitan army units mm-hmm. and not in these colonial units. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that, that, that the, the, the French army is more racially integrated by far than either the British or the American mm-hmm. at this time, um, in part for reasons of Republican ideology in part for reasons of uh, sort of military necessity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what uh, roles did the um, indigenous troops play within the French army? And by that I mean, did they serve as uh, regular line infantry primarily, or were they in support positions? Were they in artillery batteries? What sort of things did they do? Well, that varied, and, and this is where racial ideology and, and racial stereotyping becomes very apparent. Troops from certain colonies were considered shock troops, they called them. They were considered particularly aggressive, uh, savage, great fighters, uh, perhaps uh, not possessing the kind of in, uh, intelligence or um, higher sort of sense of duty as white troops, but uh, particularly good fighters, and this is very true of West Africans, for instance, um, known to, to the French as Tifaire Senegalais or, or Senegalese troops. Uh, so West Africans served quite often as combat infantry. On the other hand, you have, uh, you, you have Indo-Chinese and Madagascan soldiers, most of whom served in support roles, and that was because the French racial ideas held these troops, the people from these colonies to be less warlike, uh, in some ways more feminine, less suited to modern warfare and the rigors of, of combat, modern uh, European combat. There were some exceptions, uh, but you can see that the dramatic differences in numbers of soldiers who served either as support troops or as, as frontline infantry. Now, the, the flip side of this that Madagascar, is that Madagascan and Indo-Chinese troops were considered to be uh, more intelligent and in some ways more refined than West Africans, so they ended up serving in more advanced support roles, like serving as clerks and, mm-hmm. and, and, and that sort of communications and that sort of thing, whereas West Africans were considered only good for, for assault and combat. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there, there's a wide diversity there, but it had a great deal to do with, with the ideas about whether people from certain colonies, or even within certain colonies, were from groups known as warlike races or non-warlike races. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where did these stereotypes come from? Well, they, they have a number of origins. Some of them lie very deep back in, in the past in French and, and European history more broadly, understandings of, of, of white superiority and, and black inferiority. But also they, they stem from the experience of, of of the French in the colonies themselves. There are some paradoxes in this, however. The the, the French had a tremendously difficult time conquering Madagascar, and in particular uh, the interior part of of Madagascar. 
and yet somehow they came to the conclusion that Madagascans were not warlike and that, in fact, the people in the interior were particularly not warlike. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, there are some real contradictions, and again, the, the real, the one that would have the most serious consequences was in Indo-Chinese. Mm-hmm. In, the Vietnam, uh, in the Vietnam Wars later on, the, the, the French idea that Indo-Chinese people are not warlike and, and unsuited to, uh, to fighting Europeans mm-hmm. be proven uh, sort of tragically wrong, at least from the point of view of, of the French fighting the Indo-Chinese. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there's a, a good bit of diversity there as well. Mm-hmm. Did anybody object to these classifications? Did they say, no, you've got it all wrong, in fact, the Indo-Chinese are quite fit to be uh, yeah, combat infantrymen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, racial ideas, as a sort of general principle, I think racial ideas can be both complicated and, and entirely contradictory uh, and very logical. And, and I think that's just sort of the nature of, of uh, racist thinking in general, because a lot of it's based on emotion and, and that sort of thing. But there were it, racial ideas were not totally impervious to uh, to actual experience. So, for instance, Indo-Chinese soldiers were were discovered to, to have tremendous endurance and were considered to be to be much better, in fact, even than white troops at serving as truck drivers, mm-hmm. driving supplies up to the front lines. They were it was it was through experience they believed they they found out that Indo-Chinese soldiers could do better over without sleep and were easier on mm-hmm. and all sorts of things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madagascan troops ended up proving to be uh, to be much more resistant to winter weather than anyone ever thought they would be, and, and mm-hmm. much better at serving in the artillery. So there were some cases in which in which experience trumped these ideas, mm-hmm. but they were remarkably resilient. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, you find by the end of the war, people making the same statements that they had made about different <laughs> races of people in the colonies from before the war. Mm-hmm. And some of them are, are um, you know, well, uh, uh, frankly, as, as wrong-headed as, as they were when they first made them mm-hmm. uh, and could be contradicted by experience. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, old habits die hard. Uh, yeah. The... the, um, uh, the what was the experience of the uh, indigenous troops themselves in France? I'm always interested to hear uh, a, a little bit about, you know, what what did they think when they first saw France? What did they think when they saw the war? How did they come? How did they understand it? Well, you know, one of the things that that I spend a lot of time on in the book is the, the surprise they felt when they realized what people, uh, French people who were not in the colonies could really be like. In other words, in the colonies, the color line was very strict, and there was, uh, it was hardly ever crossed, certainly, by, by whites um, in, in any sort of meaningful sense. In other words, in any sense that would, that would undermine their power and authority uh-huh. as, uh, as racial superiors and, and in political control. But in France itself, the many colonial subjects encountered people were much more open and, and thought much less about issues of race, and and really uh, they were many colonial subjects were profoundly surprised at the treatment that they they received at the hands of French civilians. So French civilians uh, quite often treated them uh, with with kindness and openness that they that they didn't expect. Uh, and and this you know this wasn't universally the case to be sure, but it was it was often enough for for the soldiers themselves to remark on it. You see it in the censors' reports of their letters, and of course the one of, one of the chapters in the book covers uses well covers this subject in 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 greater detail with particular focus on the issue of, of relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, sexual relations across the color line. That there were a number of colonial subjects who, uh, who either had casual sexual relationships um, or, in fact, profoundly important and, and long-lasting uh, relationships that, that ended in marriage and, and children. And this was something that really astonished uh, them, uh, to be sure, but also the French authorities, because mm-hmm. they did not like the implications of mm-hmm. what it might mean. And this is where. Um, you see one of the parallels with the American experience, uh, the African American experience in the First World War. This is one of the 
the reasons that France gains a reputation as a colorblind society. Many African Americans come to France in the First World War and are, are astonished that nobody seems to, to, to really remark upon or uh, that they're black, remark upon their color, or, or treat them any differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, one soldier writes home to his mother that the, the, the French people don't bother with no color line business. Mm-hmm. The only time I know I'm colored is when I look in, in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, I, I think, a number of colonial subjects had that, a similar experience as well. At least sometimes. Now, they, they also encountered racism. There's, there's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, wh- one sort of interesting moment in the book that I'd like you to elaborate on a little bit is that uh, the, the, the and, and I hope I, I, I'm remembering correctly, sexual mores, that is the relationship between the sexes, was actually quite, quite different in, in Muslim societies, especially these North African societies, than it was in France when they got there. And uh, it, it, again, if I remember correctly, the, 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 there was kind of a general impression among the um, indigenous troops that French women were um, well, rather more free. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And and this is the, you can see one of the, the the pleasures of reading the censors' reports is that you can see their uh, their sort of dismay and shock about this this sort of thing because what what they uh, what they see is that these men are sort of generalizing about French women from their experiences with prostitutes. Yes. Yeah. They, you know, they, um, they meet a bunch of prostitutes and they say, wow, French women are different. And, and of course, you know, of, of course that's not, it's not necessarily representative. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, the, the, but but certainly, um, not just with prostitutes, the, these men encounter women, but really, I think the, the, the most important aspect of this is that they encounter white women. Uh-huh. Who are much more open to uh, to everything from just uh, talking to them and treating them as, as equal human beings to, of course, becoming involved in, the, in them in, uh, in intimate relationships. Uh-huh. So, so yeah, they they encounter these these differences. Sometimes there 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 are some distortions at work, but sometimes it is the, the sort of workings of this. Uh, this very real sense in France that race is not something that should matter. Mm-hmm. Now it's easier, much easier to have that attitude if you live in France and not in the colonies, of course. Mm-hmm. In the colonies, the, the implications of crossing the color lines are, are uh, the, the color lines to undermine white superiority, and, and that really is what colonial rule rests on. Mm-hmm. What um, did the French authorities think about these transracial relationships? Well, they, 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 the great fear and the great anxiety was what, what, uh, what I just described, that what will happen, and this is, the, in fact, the fear of white American officers uh, when they see African Americans having these same sorts of experiences, that they will go back to the colonies with expectations that they should be treated equally, mm-hmm. that they can have relationships with white women and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But so, uh, so, and this is the effect is not really limited necessarily to the soldiers. Is the soldiers write home and tell their friends and family about these things. Mm-hmm. And this is also uh, perhaps even more disturbing. And that really, one of the where you see the greatest anxiety is in uh, the postcards that these men send home. Mm-hmm. These could be postcards uh, bearing pictures of the men with their girlfriends or, or their wives even, mm-hmm. uh, posing with nurses, and that it, in itself demonstrated uh, to, uh, well, it, to the satisfaction of the censors anyway that, that the color lines had been crossed in a very dangerous way. But also they sent home uh, what the French called nudité or, or yeah. pornographic mm-hmm. cards. And this, uh, you know, I, this was clearly provoked the greatest anxiety on the part of the censors that, well, um, they're going to they're, they're going to ridicule us. And as I, I quote George Orwell in, in the book, where uh, George Orwell says in his famous story, "Shooting an Elephant," that that the, the, uh, a white person's struggle in the colonies is, is one long struggle not to be laughed at. And mm-hmm. You're the superior race. You, you can't be laughed at. You can't be ridiculed. You can't mm-hmm. be, in, in many ways, made human. And mm-hmm. this is what the, the censors fear these postcards will do. Mm-hmm. So the, the reaction was. To, to try to limit these relationships, to confiscate the postcards and so forth. But this is again where this, this sort of, that, that's the, the pull of racism 
But there is the push of Republican ideology. So uh, I quote one censor as saying, well, you know, we'd really, for reasons of racial prestige and colonial uh, politics, we'd like to put a stop to this. But we can't really do that in every case because these men are, after all, uh, they're after all free, and 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 the women themselves are are French mm-hmm. um, and and have certain rights, even though of course their rights are are circumscribed mm-hmm. and not they're not full citizens either in this period. But you you see them sort of grappling with that issue. How do we uh, sort of remain true our principles, which say that you know this kind of thing shouldn't matter? But then we have very practical racial and political considerations that uh, that are that are pulling us the other way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I should say uh, by way of digression that um, I've I've read a little bit about these nude postcards, and they were really a sensation when they were introduced. I believe in the 1880s, mm-hmm. and and there were just millions and millions of them produced and collected. That they were just a phenomenon. People couldn't. They were unstoppable. Everybody yeah. had them. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> and that is, you know, I mean, you can see that even today. Yeah. We're trying to regulate internet pornography. Yeah. It, it really is. Uh, uh, it really is, is very difficult to do. Yeah. And, and in this case, you know, it was even more so. And however, you know, there was a pretty sophisticated uh, censorship program in in place, and they did confiscate lots of these pictures. And my my favorite, I mean, and of course these the soldiers would look for ways around this. And mm-hmm. my favorite example of this is is one you know Chinese worker who says, well, they're he's aware of the censorship, so he, he writes his friend. He says, well, you know, I'm, they're they're confiscating me, so I can't send you any more postcards, but I, I'll improvise and I'll draw you a picture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and so you know, it, yeah, you, you really can't put a stop to these things. Yeah, no, they were they were really really quite something. Yeah, the um, let, let me ask another question. Uh, uh, that, that, that I think, yeah, I, I'm really glad you dealt with it because it, it, it could slip between the cracks. How, how did the uh, French officers and the uh, French people in general communicate with these um, uh, colonial troops, especially the ones who couldn't speak French? Yeah, and, and that would that would pretty much include most of, of these troops. Uh-huh. If they spoke any French, they, it wouldn't be very much or, or, or very proper French. Um, many of these men were, were uneducated and, uh, and they had no access to any kind of literate culture at all, even in their own mm-hmm. language. So, um, so, of course, many of these soldiers didn't, and this didn't speak French, and this poses a, a technical military problem. Communication is, of course, very important in the military. It means uh, life or death, quite literally. So, uh, so the, the, the French had had a long experience in dealing with colonial subjects both inside and outside the army and, and there were many French officers who spoke in, in di- various indigenous languages but of course this war was, in, was incredibly lethal and and even more incredibly lethal to officers than anyone else so soon they run out of officers who speak uh, a lot of these languages and they're left with, uh, with, with a very difficult problem of, of communication the, the example that I talk about in the book that illustrates really solution to this most spectacularly is the ways in which the French army sought to teach a, a sort of French to West African soldiers. Mm-hmm. West African soldiers were considered the, the sort of the most rustic, uh, the the least intelligent, the least civilized, and so. The idea was that well, they can't learn a, a complicated and elevated language like French. And I, and I have to point out, and I, I try to be very careful in, in pointing this out in the book, that there's a practical issue here. I mean, these officers are, are not here really to teach these guys proper French, but to teach them enough French so that they can mm. they can do their job, yeah. which is to fight. But uh, on the other hand, you see the, the kind of French that they that they tried to teach them is this sort of pidgin French, mm-hmm. which dispenses with a lot of complicated grammar rules and complicated vocabulary and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. which indeed makes French easier to speak. Um, but they, you know, and they do this. They say we're doing this because they can't they can't acquire real French. Mm-hmm. They, they don't just talk about military expediency, in other words. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, they, they they teach them this French, and what the many West Africans realize is that in France, uh, I don't know if, if this is true, say, above any other country, but certainly uh, French people uh, then and now take language very seriously. Mm-hmm. And to speak good French is the best ticket to acceptance in, in French culture. 
And what, what many of these soldiers realize is that, the, as one soldier put it, the, these, this language that they're teaching us, the, this, this sort of pidgin French, is uh, words they found to make asses out of, out of the West Africans. Mm-hmm. And, and this so language is really supposed to be, in, in colonial ideology and French national identity in general, something that, that integrates people into mm-hmm. the nations. It's very important. It's, it's something that people should learn correctly and, and be able to use confidently. And yet these soldiers were, were offered a, a form of French that, that was supposedly geared to their rustic intelligences, but really kept them on the outside. So mm-hmm. language was supposed to be a tool of integration, but in fact turns out to be something of, of well, one of the biggest barriers that they, that they face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. So what, um, what impression did the um, colonial troops relate concerning the, the kind of nature of World War One, that is combat itself. I mean, we know that uh, World War One shocked the Europeans, so I can only imagine that it shocked the colonial troops even more. What did they say about combat? Yeah, um, they, they, I, the, the, the example I use in, in the book um, to talk about this, it, it's hard to get at, first of all. Uh, it, it's hard to get at that information because the, the censors reports don't often, sometimes they include the original letters, but most of the time they include excerpts. And the censors are military officials and they're in, interested in, in things that, that are of sort of practical importance to them. Morale, comments about food, uh, of course, uh, love and sex across the color line, all sorts of other issues. They're not as usually as concerned with what these soldiers thought about uh, combat. And uh, we have very few sources that, that tell us there, there are some, uh, there's been some historians, there have been some historians who have worked on oral histories with veterans and, and that sort of thing, so we have some ideas about this. But I, I did come across one particularly lengthy report about Indo-Chinese soldiers as they, uh, uh, a company of Indo-Chinese soldiers, right after they first went into combat. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the, the, the censors really were interested. They wanted to see how this, what the effect this it had, <clears throat> and of course the the, the Indo Chinese found it I- incredible. Uh, they they found it unlike anything they could possibly have expected. Mm-hmm. And and as you point out, the you know Europeans found this to be unexpected, but Europeans had some ideas of mechanization mm-hmm. and the industrial scale of uh, of technology, and, and many of these colonial subjects would have certainly less knowledge of that and less exposure. And so the shock, I think, was all the more, uh, all the greater to them. And I, I think often you see language failing these soldiers. They sort of try to describe uh, the experience, but they realize that it's, it's almost impossible to communicate. Mm-hmm. And my favorite, uh, my favorite quote from one of these soldiers, he just said simply, I've, I've seen combat and I've seen the war, and it's not pretty. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what he's saying, he's just trying to sort of convey there um, that, that it's so awful and so stupendous that, mm-hmm. that, that, that words will pretty much fail to convey that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there, in fact, uh, I, this is not in my book, uh, but in, in another book, uh, there's an Indian soldier who fought briefly on the, the Western Front for, uh, for Britain, and he wrote home to a friend and he said, this, don't, don't think this is war. What we have here is not war; it's the ending of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that also sort of sums up the, the the incredible shock that many of these men felt when when they witnessed the really awful, stupendous nature of mm-hmm. that on the Western Front. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's right. What uh, what what opinion did the French officers have of the um, of the contribution of the colonial uh, soldiers? What 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 sort of uh, what was their sort of notion of their effectiveness in combat? Well, again, they they viewed this through a prism of, of mm-hmm. racial stereotypes. So uh, they they often saw kind of what they expected to see ahead of time. Uh, they expected Senegalese troops or West African troops to be to to be aggressive, to be savage warriors, and, and that sort of thing, but not to be particularly uh, suited. To holding trenches in defensive warfare, uh-huh. uh, some of them argue, well, they, they don't have the well-developed nervous systems and they can't take shelling like uh, like a European can. 
So, uh, so you see that it, there is, there is, um, uh, there are some, as I, I said before, there are some revelations that where, where they say that, that it's, it's really incredible. We've seen uh, some some soldiers from some areas like Indochina and Madagascar surprise us with their suitability for for modern European combat. But most of the time, the argument was, well, they're simple. They may be aggressive and savage, but that that needs to be channeled, and we need to do that with white officers. They're not suited for specialist positions. They're not suited to man machine guns. Uh, they they won't understand them. They won't uh-huh. use the equipment properly. And so, uh, and, and this, of course, as with any kind of preconceived stereotype or racial stereotype, this this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Right? They, they, these soldiers can't use machine guns because nobody ever trained them to mm-hmm. use them. Mm-hmm. And they don't train them because they don't think they'll be able to use them. Uh-huh. So, uh, so the soldiers ended up serving most often as simple foot soldiers, infantry soldiers, and not in the more specialized positions. They uh-huh. have white soldiers and officers and non-commissioned officers to fulfill those roles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. So uh, after the um, conclusion of the war when um, France was uh, victorious and um, it occupied... A, a sliver of Western Germany, that is the Rhineland. Um, they sent these colonial troops uh, in as occupiers, and this caused something of a scandal. Maybe you can um, tell that very interesting story. Yeah, uh, at, at, at the end of the war in 1918 and, and 1919, France sent troops in to occupy the Rhineland in, in Germany, and they sent the, the French army sent quite a number of uh, of troops from the colonies to, to, to perform the city. There are a number of reasons for this. There have been a number of uh, people have offered a number of explanations for it, saying that they want to humiliate the Germans, and, and this is the, the, German, um, the German response to this even at the time, is that they're doing this to humiliate us and, um, you know, having these, these uncivilized soldiers come and occupy our territory. But really what, what I found in, in my study of this is that, in fact, it was not so much focused on Germans as it was focused on, on the colonial troops and uh, the colonial subjects themselves. Uh-huh. In other words, the, the um, Lesbiania, the, the great, uh, it's a black man from West Africa who is actually a, a representative in the French parliament and, and thus a, a real symbol of Republican assimilation, he becomes the, the, the uh, a sort of special commissar uh, to to the uh, to the French government dealing with with French troops uh, colonial troops, and he argues that to Clemenceau, the leader of France, the prime minister, he says that well we should use these troops because we need to give them a concrete idea of our of our victory here. Mm-hmm. And we sent home. We want them to to go home having had a sense of French power. I mean they've been in France for years now watching watching France should prostrate before the Germans and, and quite often on the defensive. And, and what we need to do is make the victory concrete to them so that when they go home, they and the people they talk to will have a sense that France has, has triumphed. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the, there's a political aspect for, uh, internal to France, but what makes this story um, so well-known is the, the incredible controversy that it touches off. The Germans claim that these troops are rampaging through the Rhineland and raping white women and, uh, and committing all sorts of terrible uh, terrible actions against German civilians. And this gets picked up by people in Britain, in the United States, in, in many countries around the world. And they see it as an example of the French, uh, the French propensity to introduce, uh, introduce an uncivilized element into European, uh, European life. Mm-hmm. Whereas the French reaction to this is at first sort of bewilderment and then a kind of defensiveness. But look, it really doesn't matter to us that these soldiers are not white. We, we send them there because, uh, because they've earned the right to occupy the Rhineland. They're our troops, and, uh, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And in fact, the, the, the argument that the soldiers are committing rapes and all sorts of atrocities is, is spurious. Mm-hmm. And there are quite a number of relationships between white women and colonial subjects in the Rhineland, but those are of the same nature as they were in France, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did the um, colonial troops think of Germany? 
Well, uh, this is this was a, a bit of a problem, and, and again, this is where the census reports are so valuable. You can they, they, they sort of comment on these things. The, the the troops when they went into Germany, part of the problem uh, for, from the French point of view was that Germany was undamaged. <laughs> the war had never gotten to Germany, mm-hmm. so the, these troops had seen France beaten, uh, at least in, if not losing the war in the physical sense. In other words, they'd seen destroyed towns and, and many French people suffering and, and all sorts of, of, of problems in France. And then they go to Germany and, and they comment in their letters, "You should see this place. It's perfect. Go to range here. It's clean." Uh-huh. A lot of sort of stereotypes that, that, that many people have about Germany, but. Uh, and and the Germans have this incredible. Their their masters of technology. Their their houses are bigger than and they're they're much more. They're bigger than the houses in France. They 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 are wealthier than the French. And some of them also say, well, if if France defeated this great German power, it's only thanks to the help of I think as as one soldier puts it, you know, ten thousand nations, uh-huh. which is a bit of an exaggeration, but but. Um, his point being that the United States, Great Britain, and, and many of the other allies, in addition to colonial subjects from all parts of the empire, had to come just for France to be able to defeat Germany. Uh-huh. So in some senses, this use of troops to occupy Germany had some un- unintended consequences. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's very, it's really, I thought that was very interesting. You have some terrific quotes in the book uh, of just from these censors' reports about what the colonial... Uh, Troops said about Germany, and I just kind of laugh out loud moments um, because they yeah. do. They, they are all our stereotypes about Germans. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And, and, and like I said, this, you know, it's it, 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 in some senses. Then, yeah, there, there's a grain of truth. But then the other reality, and, and this is what is getting we're getting the French censors to pull out their hair, is that they're, they're sort of misinterpreting the, the <clears throat> undamaged nature of Germany as uh-huh. uh, the, the idea that well, Germany. You know, sort of barely lost or something, yeah, or, or yeah. you know, it was an accident that they yeah. lost, and in fact, uh, of course, mm-hmm. they were soundly defeated, mm-hmm. but just not damaged. Yeah, I see just what you mean. So, uh, just to conclude the story, what happens to the um, colonial troops after the war? Well, um, they are demobilized as rapidly as the French can. I mean, um, at first, they keep many of these troops on because they they would rather demobilize white French soldiers first. Uh, they, they, the white French soldiers have been at war for four years, and they want to go home, and after all, uh, on the one hand, they're white, and on the other, they're, they're citizens and voters. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a good idea to get them home to their families politically, and you can you, you don't need to worry about those things quite as much with colonial subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, uh, you know, once once the the pressure to occupy and and, uh, and and wind things down is over, these soldiers are demobilized as rapidly as the French can can do so and sent back to their colonies. Uh, and and this is in in many cases not a, a very uh, orderly process. And and many soldiers, some of them don't want to go home because they in fact married French women uh, or mm-hmm. they would like to stay for other reasons. Many of them thought, uh, as, as we talked about earlier, thought that maybe that they would gain greater rights or become French citizens or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, that the story I tell in the book of, of that effort to, to to offer citizenship to the soldiers really is confounded by uh, once again racial racial stereotypes and and uh, in particular stereotypes about Islam, mm-hmm. and religious prejudices. That that really, uh, the the French say, well, they're not suited for French citizenship, and uh, and and so in fact, these soldiers don't gain the the rights mm-hmm. that, that many of them might have thought that they would have mm-hmm. at the beginning of all of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a sad story in that way. Well, Richard. Yeah, we've really taken up a lot of your time, and we uh, we appreciate it very much. Um, let me conclude the interview by asking our traditional uh, final question here on New Books in History. What what are you working on now? What's your next project? Sure, I am working on something that, that is sort of related, but that I could not go into as much detail about in the book. Um, and in the chapter about religion, I talk about uh, the, the the role that Islam played as a sort of political football, I guess we would call it, between France and Germany. Mm-hmm. The Germans trying to entice uh, these soldiers to desert uh, to the German side and fight in the Ottoman army. Well, there, there in fact, is a, an enormous amount of archival material the, on this, this group of men who were either taken prisoner or deserted to German lines. They mm-hmm. were put in a, a prison camp 
and were uh, were the targets of propaganda. They built a mosque in this prison camp mm-hmm. and tried to get them to fight in the Ottoman army. Mm-hmm. They, many of these soldiers were a little smarter than that and realized that that probably wasn't <laughs> any more fun than fighting for France. And mm-hmm. so they had to be forced into this battalion and sent into Mesopotamia to fight for the Turks, where many of them deserted. Mm-hmm. And uh, only about 100 of them survived and they made it back to to British lines. They deserted the Ottoman army to British lines and then, and then ended up back in France. So they had this incredible epic adventure, mm-hmm. um, uh, this odyssey that they went on. And, and I want to use that story to tell uh, a sort of broader story about the role of Islam in, in, in German and French conceptions mm-hmm. of the war and conceptions of national identity. Mm-hmm. So some things that are sort of related to what I did in, in this book, but that will, uh, that, that will expand upon some of the ideas and go into greater detail about mm-hmm. other issues. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds terrific, and we hope that you come on the show when you're done with that. So we'll expect you in a few weeks then? No, I, yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah. sure. <laughs> I know how long these things take. Well, this one, yeah, this one only took 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Well, believe me. No, right exactly. So, well, Richard... Uh, um, we want to thank you very much for being on the show, and uh, and uh, we, I will talk to you later, okay? Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Richard Fogarty, author of Race and War in France, Colonial Subjects in the French Army, 1914 to 1918. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Have a great week.